Good morning. So glad to see you this morning. Come on a beautiful Sunday. I've really sensed the Lord's presence here today, so I trust that as you have come and with open hands, open hearts, that you'll come away today having really experienced the Lord's fresh presence in your life. Uh, this morning, we finish our four-week series uh, entitled Wildfire, and our message this morning is called Kindling That Ignites Kingdom Movement Wildfires. You ever heard the phrase, hindsight is 2020? Sure you have. A few months ago, I was talking with a young friend who uh, is a, a manager in a high-tech firm in Seattle, and I had been watching this company and its performance. It wasn't very old, and I thought, you know what? It'd be a pretty good idea to try and invest here at the early stages and see if this thing can uh, give me some kind of return on my investment. So I, I was thinking about buying stock. And at that time, it was selling at about $35 a share. So I went to my young friend and I said, you know, I think it's high time that I bought some stock in, in, your, in your company. And he looked at me and he said, Phil, you know, I'd be really careful about that because if something were to happen to your investment, I don't want to be responsible for any loss that you might have. So I listened to his voice of caution and made a huge mistake. Because in the last few months, that stock has gone from $35 a share to $140 a share. And if you do your math right, that's a 400% increase. If I had had $10,000 in about six months, it would have turned into about $40,000. Unfortunately, I don't have $10,000, but it was a great idea. So when someone says hindsight is 2020, it's usually about something you wish you had done differently. Well, the Bible is full of great hindsight 2020 stories. Some of them are about things we would do well not to repeat. However, as we finish up our series this morning in Wildfire, I'd like to share with you some positive lessons that are worth repeating both for us individually and as a church here at Life Center North. The last three weeks, we've been talking about our future direction as a church. And, and that's the direction that we believe that God is leading us to take uh, in the next months and really in the next years. So in a word that you may have heard over and over again, Glendy just used it again, is the word movement. What's a movement? Unfortunately, a lot of people think when they think of movement, they think of bowel movements. Okay, so you'll be really encouraged to know that I'm not talking about BMs this morning. Well, a movement is a wildfire that God uses to move his kingdom forward in power and in depth that brings transformation to our individual lives and brings corporate transformation to us as a church that powerfully blesses God's people and makes a lasting impact on the world. Another way of saying it is that it's a personal and collective God thing. I don't know about you, but I don't like doing church just to do church. When a God thing happens in someone's life, I say, I want a part of that. When a God thing happens in my life and other people see it, they say, whether it's my wife or my adult children or their kids or whatever, they say, yeah, I'd, I'd like some of that too. That's what a movement is. So we've been talking about fires and wildfires. How do you go about starting a fire? Well, the way you don't start a fire is by cutting down three or four full-grown trees and throwing a match on it. The way you start a fire is with small pieces of wood that are called kindling. That's right. 
Lots of Boy Scouts in the audience here this morning. The New Testament book of Acts puts three distinct movements, church-based movements, on display, and every one of those movements is started by a piece of kindling that results in a kingdom wildfire. So maybe some of you who have been around the faith for a long time have heard of the course called Walk Through the Bible, where we're going to sprint through the book of Acts this morning, okay? And we're going to look at these three church-based movements that are in Jerusalem and in Antioch and in the city of Ephesus. So let's begin now. The first movement we want to look at this morning is called the Jerusalem Movement, and the wildfire kindling that launches the movement is the kindling of community. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. We begin this morning by reading about this first movement in the early church, which took place on the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2. And I don't know if you remember that story, but in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we see a number of people who are gathering on this feast day, the day of Pentecost, coming from all different countries around the world. Jesus had ascended to his father just 10 days before, And he told his apostles to wait and to pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as they waited for those 10 days, what happens on the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit comes rushing in like a mighty wind, and it landed on people. He landed on people who spoke in different languages they had never spoken before. I can't tell you how many times I prayed for that gift when I was a missionary in Ethiopia, but I had to do it the old-fashioned way. You know, I had to learn word by word by word. But these people were speaking languages in the common world that they had never studied before, and it created such a ruckus that the whole community, the whole city came in, and they said, what in the world is God doing in our midst? Peter preaches a sermon, and this is what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 people in all. Must have been a pretty good sermon. Peter had never preached anything like that before and seen that kind of result. So we know it wasn't about Peter. It was really about the work of the Holy Spirit. But Bible scholars tell us that that number, 3,000, was just the number of men. It didn't include the women and the children. Those scholars further estimate that there could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000 people who believed in Jesus on that day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. That larger church today in the 21st century in America, uh, there's a name for it. It's called a megachurch. Some say a megachurch is any church that's over about 1,000 people. I don't really consider us to be a megachurch, but we are a church over 1,000 people. But the, the point is not that this is a megachurch. There's something else that's happening on that day that takes that first initial expression of movement further and deeper. That's what a movement is. And there's a lot more to this movement than just those sheer numbers. So let's look back at Acts 2, picking up at verse 42. Right after Peter preaches that message, those 3,000 men and other thousands of people come in. This is what happened. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, 
met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Did you catch some of the verbiage in that passage? The first thing that we see in Acts 2.42 through 46 is the word all being used over and over and over again. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves. Verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. Verse 44, all the believers met together. So this wasn't just a movement that touched a few individuals on that day of Pentecost. It was something that was being experienced by everyone. But why was that? Well, the second thing we see in this passage that gives us a clue is that all of this language is stated in terms of community. That's the kindling. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship and to sharing. Verse 44, all the believers met together and shared everything they had. Verse 45, they shared the money with those in need. Verse 46, they worshiped together. They met in homes. They shared their meals together, together, shared, 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 shared. Did you catch that language? So this amazing thing is being propelled through the kindling of community. And what was the result? Let's finish up this passage. Verse 47, it picks up after what we just read, and it says, all the while they were praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. That is, everyone in the city of Jerusalem, even the unbelievers. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This thing was like a runaway train going downhill with no brakes. It was unstoppable. It was unquenchable. It was undeniable. And when the city of Jerusalem, all those who didn't believe, saw the way this church community, now tens of thousands of people, how they loved each other, how they sacrificed for one another, how they worshiped together and shared everything in common. Those unbelievers looked at all of that that was happening and they said, we don't understand all that's going on here, but what we do know is that that is not a part of our lives. I want a part of that. We want a part of that. We want what this community is experiencing to happen in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, in our families. I got to get me some of that. And as a result of that, as the Holy Spirit was expressing his movement and demonstrating his presence through community, everyone around said, I've got to be a part of that. That's what community does. In my life, in my marriage, in our family, and I've known the Lord for 40 years, I cannot think of a single instance of significant spiritual growth or movement activity in our lives apart from community. We have been a part of dozens and dozens of small group groups where God the Holy Spirit put his best work on display. And through stirring up his work in the lives of others, it stirred up his work in us. And as he stirred up his work in us, then it started spreading out. It was just like atoms that were splitting. That was unstoppable. That's what a movement looks like and is propelled through the kindling of community. I'd like to show you a photo of some dear friends of ours. Guy on the right is Tony Lombardo, and that's his wife, Wendy. How many of you know the Lombardos? See? Not many people. These guys are movement leaders because these guys do community par excellence. Tony's a general contractor. Wendy is a paraeducator in the Mead school system. 
And when we first came to Life Center North, about 2001, about 18 months after the church was planted, we're still meeting over here at Northwood Middle School, uh, Peggy and I, knowing that community was essential to our vibrant growth in Christ, knew that we needed to be a part of a life group. And so we got a list of all the life groups and where they were located geographically, and we found the one that was closest to us, not knowing hardly anybody in the church. And Tony and Wendy were the leaders. So we went to their house, and we met these folks. We started developing friendships with these people. They didn't know us. We didn't know them. But when we started living life together, we developed friendships that were life-changing. We ended up doing lots of fun stuff together. We ended up crying together, laughing together, suffering loss together. We helped each other in our homes, doing different kinds of things. Tony introduced me to every possible, possible caliber of handgun and rifle known to man. <laughs> Tony has made me a much better man. Wendy has helped Peggy become a much better woman. And Tony and Wendy have had this influence in our lives that has accelerated movement just through our friendship. Other couples in those life groups experience the same. And Tony and Wendy, I saw the few hands that went up, they just keep on quietly doing this work as they group after group after group, salting the kingdom, salting people's lives to make others through those lives more thirsty for the realities of God. That's what community is supposed to do. And community is essential to movement. Now, before I move on, I want to mention one more thing about community because here in America, when anyone starts talking in that kind of language, there's kind of an unintentional, invisible disconnect. And here it is. Besides the Constitution, what is the most important document we hold dear as Americans? It's called the Declaration of like to hear that again. Declaration of independence. Americans are proud of their independence. It's hardwired into our DNA as a people. We revolted against the King of England back in the 1700s and established this perfect union we call the United States of America. Well, not quite perfect. And so that hard wiring in us as believers, as it relates to us as believers, we come up with this kind of theology. You know what? I can be a follower of Jesus, but I don't really need to connect with anyone else. I can be a follower of Christ and have a growing relationship without being involved in the life of small groups. You see, and even sometimes when I say something like that, there, there rises up in some of us this reaction. Oh, so you're telling me that I've got to be a part of a small group. Chill, okay. You know, when we talk about life groups or rooted or service groups here in the church, these aren't advertisements. These aren't just programs. We recognize as church leadership and so many people like Tony and Wendy who are just common people who love Jesus we recognize that without community, a movement is most likely not going to happen. We don't do it to, to make a bigger church. We do it because we realize that for God to do his Holy Spirit work in us, we have to all be engaged in some form, in some way of community life 
just like the church of Jerusalem, because you know what? I don't want to do just church. And doing church is not our goal as Life Center North. We want to propel, and we're committed to propel movements of God in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and around the world. Without community, it just isn't going to happen. So if we want to experience a God-led movement here and through LCN, every one of us needs to listen to this example and imitate the example of the Jerusalem church. But there's more. And the next movement distinctive is found in Acts chapter 11 and Acts 13. So let's look at it now. Secondly, the second movement that we see is the Antioch movement. And the kindling for movements through that church is something I call listening prayer. Now, many pastors conclude that the Jerusalem church is the ultimate model to imitate. After all, who wouldn't want to aim for and to lead a megachurch? And while we learn valuable lessons from their example, the book of Acts has two more movement-oriented churches, each one with a different piece of kindling that launched distinctive new wildfires. So the second powerful church in Acts is the church of Syria in Antioch. And just to give us an idea of how it got started, let's pick it up in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. This is how it reads. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, this initial movement, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So this church at Antioch gets its start. The gospel starts getting preached. There's a couple of strong leaders, just like the apostles were at the church of Jerusalem, and a lot of people just start believing in Christ. They begin to mature. They begin to develop. And then this passage represents the ending of Acts chapter 11. And then in Acts chapter 12, it talks about the persecution that rose up against the church, the martyrdom of James the apostle. But then it picks it up again in Acts chapter 13, one year later. And God is saying, you know what? It's just not enough to have another Jerusalem-style movement. I want to do something fresh and and different. I want to start another wildfire, and I'm going to do it in a different way. So let's pick it up at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul, or Paul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. 
And so Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. Do you catch the magnitude of what happened? Wasn't enough for the church in, in Antioch to just have a lot of new believers? The Holy Spirit wanted to do something fresh and new. And these leaders had a sense that God, the Holy Spirit, wanted to do something fresh and new. They didn't know what it was. And so what they did is they sat in God's presence day after day after day with completely humble hearts and open hands, open ears saying, God, speak to us as a church. It says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Literally, that means that they were ministering to the heart of God. Not just singing songs, not just giving offerings. No, those are, those are acts of worship. But they were, work, they were worshiping in such a way where they said, I will do anything you tell me to do because my heart is humble and completely obedient to you, God. Just show me what it is. And one day, the Holy Spirit finally decides to speak. And this is what he said. I want you to take 40% of your pastoral staff, two out of the five guys, and I want you to set these men apart for a special work that I've never done before, to which I'm calling them and you as a church. Their names are Barnabas and Saul. You're going to have to sacrifice two of your senior leaders. But I guarantee you, if you'll do that, it's going to start something that will launch another wildfire. And that's exactly what happened. They gladly received that word. They fasted and prayed some more, probably for some more specific direction. They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And for the first time in history, a church planting apostolic team was formed that launched new churches all throughout a number of areas far away from Antioch. God the Holy Spirit spoke because these men were willing to listen. That is what is called listening prayer. That is the kindling that launched the movement there. A number of years back, I was kind of stuck in my walk with God, wondering about what was in my future. And because I'm an elder here at the church and because Pastor Mike is my friend, I really trust him. And I know that Mike is a man who listens to God. He engages in listening prayer every day of his life. He does it so much better than I do. So I counted on him and I called him and I said, Mike, would you be willing to commit yourself to listening prayer so that you can help me figure out how to get past this impasse in my life? He said, Phil, I'd love to. He prayed and listened and prayed and listened and prayed and listened. And then he came back to me a few weeks later, actually a few months later, and he said, Phil, I've heard the Lord and this is what he has for you. I'm going to pause there just kind of for dramatic effect, okay? How would you feel if someone who had listened to God, whom you knew, knew the word of God and loved God, was going to say something that would bless your heart and impact your life? Well, you'd have ears to listen, right? And I did. And Mike looked at me and he said, Phil, God has invested a lot of grace into your life. And the word that I have for you has nothing to do with a specific direction. It just has to do something with your heart. And he spoke to me and he said, Phil, with that investment that God's made in you, I want you to know that if you remain indecisive, you're going to have to stand before Jesus someday and give an account for your lack of faith. Don't shrink back. Don't hold back. 
it's time that you move and listen to God and trust him by faith. And I said, well, pass the salt and pepper. No. That was a prophetic word that God spoke into my life. And when he spoke that word, I listened. I made some changes in my life. I listened and prayed to God just like Mike did. And when those changes began to unfold in my life, it led me into new movement activities in my family and my marriage and in my ministry that I had never seen take place before. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that's way cool. That's way cool. Now, let me tell you what listening prayer is not before we move on. Listening prayer is not just kind of opening your Bible and saying, God, give me a word for today, you know, and you put your finger in it and said, and he went out and hung himself. You know, that's what Judas did. No, that's not, that's not a word from God, all right? I, as a pastor for a number of years, I've actually had uh, things like this happen where uh, a man came to me or came to someone else that I was working with in leadership. They said, you know, I've been listening to God and, and wanting a word from God, and the Lord has told me that I should leave my wife and that I should marry this other person that I've been shacking up with for the last six months. But that's not a word from God, okay? Because it's not consistent with the scriptures. And it didn't come from community. Listening prayer in the community of faith that has firm roots in the word of God and words that come, prophetic words that come from people who love Jesus and love his church and want to grow and are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking for. And and that's what happened in Antioch, and that's what we need to replicate. So in your personal times with God, just like Mike was talking about, or in your time with your mate, or prayer times with your family, or just in your small group, whatever the environment might be, Rather than just jumping into your list of intercessory prayer, discipline yourself to say, God, I am here with open hands and an open heart and a humility for you to be able to say whatever it is you want to say to me about my life. Speak, Lord, your servant listens. And when you do that, it'll launch and accelerate a movement in your life. Imagine what would happen if that were to take place in the life of every person in the Life Center North, it would be astounding. Listening prayer is our second piece of kindling. Now we'll move on to a third and final church-based movement in the book of Acts. Their kindling was different than the pieces in Jerusalem, community, and Antioch, listening prayer. And so let's look at this third one and finish up. The third movement we see in the book of Acts is in the city of Ephesus. And this Ephesus movement has as its foundational kindling intentional disciple-making. Let me explain what that means. In Acts chapter 18 and 19, the church of Ephesus had a very small beginning. An apostle named Apollos went in. It was followed up by a couple uh, uh, named Priscilla and Aquila, and they didn't really see very much fruit. It was just very, very small beginnings, just a, a couple of handfuls of believers However, this church ended up having perhaps the most profound and deepest impact out of any New Testament church, even eclipsing Jerusalem and Antioch. In fact, it was really, you could really consider Ephesus the powerhouse church of its day in the whole book of Acts. So follow along with me as I read this final passage in Acts chapter 19 
And you'll see what this third piece of kindling was that ignited the movement there. Summarizing the early work of the church, in verse 7 it says there were about 12 men in all. That's all that was there. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly badmouthed or maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, that is the twelve, maybe some others, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now this marks a pivot point in Paul's ministry because up until this point in time, Paul was known as the great church planting apostle among the Gentiles. He always did the work directly himself and he always did it in teams. So up until Acts 19, everywhere Paul went, he was the one who was responsible to launch and plant new churches along with his partners. Now, by this time also, Paul had suffered a lot. He had lived a lot of years. He was getting older. He's probably slowing down some. He also had been beaten up so much and suffered so much for his faith that maybe he was just tired of being punished. But probably not just because of increasing years and severe persecution did Paul decide to do the next thing. Because what Paul said to himself was, I remember the example of my Lord Jesus Christ, who, even though he was the greatest preacher of all time, decided that the way that he would launch his movement would be by giving himself to just 12 men. And so Paul matures, Paul grows in his understanding of what his kingdom work is going to be, and Paul says, I'm going to take these 12 and I'm going to meet with these guys for a long time, and if others come in, I'm going to really zone in on them and give my life to them. So Paul did that for a long time, and let's see what the result was. Looking at verse 10, picking up where we left off. So Paul took those people, met with them daily, and it says in verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now look at the result there. How many people in this province of Asia, that's Asia Minor, one of the most heavily populated places uh, of its day in the modern world, how many of them heard the word of the Lord? Some of them? Many of them? Most of them? No. You know, I don't usually pull out New Testament Greek, but let me do this. You know what the word all means? It means all. Now you're a Greek scholar. Okay. All the people in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl heard the gospel through this intentional disciple-making ministry of Paul. Furthermore, if you go on to, uh, to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you'll see the first church mentioned of the seven. It's the church of Ephesus. Jesus speaks to six other churches that have been around for a long time, well, that church planning movement, churches like Pergamum and Philadelphia and Smyrna and Thyatira and Laodicea, those churches, they were all planted and then multiplied other churches because of this intentional disciple-making ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul decided, I'm going to be like Jesus, not just in his character, but I want to be like Jesus in his strategy. I am going to make disciples who are going to make disciples who are going to make disciples. 2 Timothy 2.2 captures it well. It says this, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, 
And what I have entrusted to you, that's the first generation and the second generation, entrust also to faithful men, third generation, who will be able to teach others also, fourth generation. I have taken this to heart in my ministry. It's something that some mentors poured into my life very early on. Do less by investing in a few who can lead and start wildfire movements. There's one particular brother. We were missionaries in Ethiopia. I developed a friendship with a guy named Olamayu about 15 years ago. And I've had these inputs into Olamayu, very, very humble things. Uh, because he, he, he already speaks the language. He already likes the food. He knows where to go and where not to go. And I just gave him some equipping resources that he hadn't been introduced to before. And in the last eight or nine years, Olamayu has done this many-generation kind of intentional disciple-making work. And the ones whom he trained, who trained others, who trained others, who trained others, they've planted more than 3,000 churches and trained 40,000 leaders because they imitated Jesus' strategy, because they did what Paul is doing here. And that's God's word for us as well. You might say, what can I do? I'm just a contractor like Tony. I'm just a paraeducator like Wendy. You know what? God's put you in your world because, hey, that's where you live. (laughs) There's nobody else that can do in your neighborhood what you can do. There's nobody else that can do in your family what you can do. Nobody else that can do in your part of Spokane what you can do. And if you choose to just pour your life into three or four or one or two other people, If you commit yourself to this kindling of intentional disciple-making and say, Jesus, help me zero in on these people, he will launch a movement through you. The first commandment of the Bible, Genesis 1.26, God said to Adam and Eve before the fall, he said, be fruitful in what? Multiply. Not add, multiply. When Jesus was at the critical turning point of his ministry in Luke chapter 6, he gathered all the disciples, thousands and thousands of people who were following him, and he spent the night in prayer. And he said, God, show me the ones. And God gave him 12, and Jesus poured his life into them. And then finally, Jesus' last command to us, his people, his followers, his disciples, he said, go therefore into all the nations and what? Make disciples. The kindling of community, the kindling of listening prayer, and the kindling of intentional disciple-making. Listen to God. Ask him what he's speaking into your heart. And let's seek to emulate this amazing work of the Holy Spirit two centuries, uh, two, two millennia ago so that Jesus can do his work in and through us to launch new movements today. God, give us a movement. Let's pray. Very simply right now, I just want you to ask God in listening prayer, God, what is one thing that you were impressing into my heart right now? And so for the next 30 or 45 seconds, just listen to the Holy Spirit speak to your heart.
God, Holy Spirit, you did something amazing 2,000 years ago, and you've been doing amazing movement work throughout the history of your people. We declare to you today that we want a movement in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in this city, and all around the world. The thing that you've spoken into our hearts, Jesus, we now lay it before you. And we ask that you would launch a movement in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name.